Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and on today's episode, I welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Richard Severin. So Rich was on a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago now, and we talked all about why it's vital to take vital signs when you're a physical therapist. If you missed it, go back to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, find the episode, and listen to it, because it was great. Now, before we get to this episode, a little bit more about Rich. He is a physical therapist and ABPTS certified cardiovascular and pulmonary specialist. He completed his cardiopulmonary residency at the William S. Middleton VA Medical Center, University of Wisconsin-Madison, which he then followed up with an orthopedic residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, he is working on a PhD in rehab science at UIC with a focus on cardiovascular physiology. In addition to research, teaching, and clinical practice regarding patients with cardiopulmonary diseases, Dr. Severin has a strong interest in developing clinical practice tools for risk assessments for physical therapists in a variety of practice settings. He is an active member within the APTA and serves on the Social Media Committee and the Heart Failure Clinical Practice Guideline Development Team for the Cardiopulmonary Section. Now, getting back to today's episode, it was inspired by a post on Facebook, I think, in the Doctor Physical Therapy Facebook group. And a lot of people had questions about PhDs, kind of about these terminal degrees. So we thought, let's do a podcast just to kind of clear up some misconceptions and myths that people might have around getting these terminal degrees. So in this episode, we talk about what it takes to get accepted into the right PhD program for you, including how to find a mentor and develop a competitive edge, the differences between each of the terminal degrees, so an EDD, a PhD, et cetera, and what the job prospects are after you get that terminal degree. And I know probably a big topic for a lot of uh, students and new grads is, is it possible to manage the debt incurred from getting your doctorate in physical therapy and the clinical work while you pursue a PhD? And we talk about some really creative ways to kind of generate some extra cash, Um, We talk about the changing academic world and growth in the job landscape and so much, much more. So it's a great conversation. I hope you guys like it. If you do, you can find me on Twitter at KarenLitzyNYC or at Facebook at Facebook.com slash HealthyWealthySmart. Find the episode. Tell me about it. What did you like? What didn't you like? Um, You can also find Rich at PT Reviewer on Twitter. So thank you uh, all for listening. And before we go, today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. To get a free month and a free download, go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. They have 180,000 titles to choose from. Right now, I'm veering away from the clinical world, and I am listening to Dan Brown's Inferno, which is really good. If you haven't read or listened to it yet, I highly recommend it. Anyway, uh, again, you can go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode all about the PhD education with Dr. Rich Severin. Hey, Rich, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you on. Hey, Karen, thanks for having me back. I'm, you know, I'm excited uh, to get talking about this. this uh, you know, going into academia and pursuing a PhD is one, of course, you know, you know I'm interested in doing that as, as, as a PhD student. And, um, you know, I want to encourage people to get into it. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of questions about it. A lot of people are uncertain. And I'm hope, hopefully, you know, this podcast, we can answer some of those questions. And, um, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I mean, we sort of put this out onto a couple of different Facebook groups, and there were a ton of responses and a ton of questions, which I think is great. So, but one question that nobody asked, and Rich and I were sort of talking about this before, uh, the before we went live here on the podcast, no one asked, "How do you apply? How yeah. does, how does that work? How do you get into a PhD program?" So, go ahead, Rich, take it away. It's, I'm really glad we decided to open with this because um, this actually this this process of applying and getting into a PhD program is um, kind of pretty influenced kind of where I'm at um, currently. So um, yeah, I always, always had an interest in pursuing academia um, and you know wanted to apply. And I had friends who were PhD students um, in different areas, not not PTs, but like in immunology or physiology or biochemistry and um and I, and I i actually had reached out to a few of them to ask them didn't get kind of the same response that i wanted but long story short um the, the process will vary from program to program um the the general approach is um and the way i was um encouraged to go about this so when i was in residency in wisconsin um, I asked, you know, like I, I planned on maybe just doing mine there under a guy, under a guy named Bill Schrage. I was encouraged to kind of you know, talk to him by one of my research mentors. And, um, you know, he, he informed me that kind of the best way to go about it is to, con to find someone who's interested or does research that you're interested in. Because um, the PhD really is mentor driven. And usually if you're a PhD, like someone considering going down that road, you have like a list of researchers or authors that you follow. Um, you, you kind of know who they are already. Um, so that's the first step, like finding the person. Um, and then you, you know, if you have discourse with them, reach out to them. If not, there's usually nothing, you know, you're usually not going to get, um, a, you know, a negative response from cold emailing someone or cold calling. I would recommend emailing them and asking them and saying like, Hey, these are my interests. Um, you know, and I would, I would, I would consider applying here, you know, what are, what are your opportunities? Because, um, it's not like a PT program or a professional program where there's just like an, a list of 60 open spots for a program, you know, PhDs, there's maybe one or two per year, um, or maybe not even, maybe not even available for a year. A lot of it's based on funding. Um, and that's why I didn't, I didn't go actually go to Iowa. We didn't have funding for me to go there, um, you know, for that year. So, um, you know, that, and that's what I did. I had reached out to a couple programs. I reached out to Iowa. They, they, came, they brought me down to interview. I met the, the, the faculty there. I checked out the lab. Um, and then I applied. Now, when you apply, um, you know, you have to submit your CV. You have to submit, you know, an application. And you apply usually to the graduate school, which is usually separate from the department. Um, so, you're, you're applying to the, the, the entire, so the graduate college oversees all of the master's programs, PhD programs, and in some cases, you know, some professional programs, but usually that's separate. And then um, they have to approve your, um, like your admissions, and then the department approves your admissions. So you, you kind of apply to both the, 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 the department and then the college, and then you have to have funding for you to be there. And the funding structure will be different from program to program, but that's the general approach. And when you say you have to have funding to be there, could you kind of explain that a little bit more? And 
when you're looking, I mean, is this something when you're looking at different colleges to apply for, are you specifically asking what their funding is, number one? And number two, where are they getting their funding from? What does that mean for you as a PhD student and so on? So um, the, the way it shakes down, most like tenure track or like research faculty, um, you know, a lot of a large portion of their salary will be um, in most instances, it'll be again, it'll be vary from program to program. Um, but they'll have an expectation to self-fund part of their salary and then from the department pick up the rest. And it'll vary between years because you don't always get funding every year, but they're expected to fund themselves. And then within their funding, um, they'll submit for grant funding to maybe take on a research coordinator and to take on PhD students, um, you know, and they, and they cover their tuition. So, um, and that was part of, um, you know, the, the process, you know, at Iowa and I, you know, and when I interviewed and met with them, you don't ask them, like, do you have, you know, you know, how much, how much funding do you have? They'll usually tell you, hey, we have funding, you know, like in your question, I have, you know, what are your opportunities for students? And they'll say, we, we have space for one student, you know, um, and that's usually how you go about it. I wish there was a more of a centralized process like we do for professional programs, like, you know, you would, like, for example, if they have like a website that, that listed, oh, we have one slot here, we have two slots here. There isn't really anything um, like that to my knowledge. And it's partially because so many programs are different and funding can vary even within the year sometimes. Um, if you don't meet expectations by the NIH or the AHA or something like that. So, or if, a, you know, um, in academia, if you're successful, you know, you may be moving on to different programs too. So move up, move up the chain of academia. So um, that's probably why that doesn't exist. But yeah, so uh, the general recommendation is find, um, you know, you, you should have an, an area of interest um, even before you start all of this. And then you reach out to researchers that you follow or who do topics that you would like to, um, you would like to learn about, and then um, email them, see what opportunities they have available, and then, um, then you start the process, the process of applying. And then usually they'll interview you along that, along that pathway. Got it. Okay, so in keeping with the theme of sort of finding out what you're interested in, emailing that person, um, there are a lot of questions that came up it, on this various Facebook pages of um, getting your PhD in PT. Yeah, so yeah. So can you kind of explain that a little bit um, cause I, that was new to me. Um, so what is the, what do people, <laughs> is that a misconception that you're getting a PhD in PT or do you yeah. have to specialize in a certain part of, of what might be applicable to physical therapy? Yeah, I, I really wish we thought this through, uh, more thoroughly once the DPT rolled around. Cause like I get asked this all the time and my degree isn't even PT, it's in rehab science. So um, cause yeah, cause we have, you know, we have a, a doctor of physical therapy degree now a PhD in physical therapy, but they're both doctoral degrees in PT. What do you, I mean, very confusing. So, um, the PhD, um, so the first thing, the DPT is not a terminal degree. It's a first professional doctoral degree. So that's the first extension. It, it trains you to become a clinician and how to maybe appraise some research and maybe there's a research requirement in some programs, but it's not a CAPI requirement. You don't have to conduct research. Um, and in many ways, like it's completely irrelevant to practice. I mean, 
conducting research versus appraising and using research, two completely different things. Um, and the DPT is not really supposed to prepare you for that, to make you a good clinician and you know, serve your patient. PhD is an academic degree. Um, it's a terminal degree. Um, it's designed for you to become you know, a researcher, an academic. And um, the P PhD in physical therapy is um, the topics that it covers are as broad as a profession. Because um, you know, when I applied to Iowa, the, the degree initially was physical therapy. Um, but I would have been working in a vascular, like biology lab, a cardi cardiovascular physiology, and the, my mentor wouldn't have even been a physical therapist. So um, the way I look at it is the PhDs, like degree, physical therapy, physiology, so have you, doesn't matter as much as your mentor, like what they do and what you do with them. Um, like, for example, like my degree is in rehab science and rehab science. You know, most people, when they first think of it, they think of like biomechanics and motor control. But within our own department, we have people, we have people who do that and do that really, really well. But we also have, you know, our lab group, um, which does cardiovascular, cardiovascular physiology. We do like vascular studies, like invasive stuff, like to look at um, VASA reactivity. Um, we do exercise training studies in obese populations. So, and we have people who do pediatric stuff. So it's a, it's as broad of a spectrum as our profession. And I think that's probably where the name probably needs to move to because it's a it's a study of um, like the sciences of rehabilitation. And um, and usually in that too, you don't just get PTs, which I think would be good too because um, you know because you have often in academia and PhD programs you don't have clinicians. Or you need to have somebody who just goes. And does their master's and you know kinesiology or something like that, and then goes and does a PhD, and then they would have a PhD in physical therapy, for example, but they wouldn't be a physical therapist. I think we should really move to that rehab science name. But yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense because that can be very confusing. So because you could get a PhD in PT but not be a PT. Yeah. So yeah, I, that is really confusing, actually. So thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of times, programs too for for those programs, though, will um, require um, like those to pursue a PhD in physical therapy to be a licensed PT. That's some programs. That's so not it's not synonymous everywhere. But because um, because yeah, again, like some of them, like it's it's just a, a researcher with a degree in physical therapy, but they're not they're not a PT. They're just doing research. Got it. Got it. Okay. So. Um, let's talk about another another thing that that didn't come up, and we will get to all, a lot of these questions. But something that just came to mind for me is, if you're going to go into a research track, you should be very clear on your why. Yeah. Why you're doing that. So, if you're a new grad and you want to go into your P, to get a PhD, does that mean that you are no longer in the clinic at all? Does that mean you are strictly research and you are no longer treating patients on the clinical side? Yeah, so that's a great question and something that I, I'd like to kind of broach a little bit. So um, I think a lot of times academics and researchers get this um, bit of a misnomer that they're kind of out of touch and not, you know, they have no relatability to clinicians. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I think that may be the case. Um, but I want to emphasize something here. 
in our field of rehab science and you know the science of physical therapy and practices, most people who do this were once clinicians, like and usually were like had been practicing for quite some time and were very good clinicians. You know, they transitioned more to academia and pursued a PhD. They didn't suddenly forget all of the issues that were there when they were practicing, and, and partially because some of the same issues we've had 30 years ago, we still have now as far as direct access and trying to understand like what's the best intervention and some of the science behind what we do. So I think people need to realize like our researchers, our clinical researchers are a little bit more in touch than most places. Maybe in like a, a, a pure analytical chemist, you know, and like, you know, applying that to like medicine. Yeah. Maybe a little different because the person who's doing a PhD in analytical chemistry, like maybe hasn't ever interacted with a patient before a little bit different. Um, so and sometimes, like, uh, like my, my mentor, Shane Phillips, awesome guy. Like, he's, he's, he's an awesome, awesome mentor. Um, he, he's more, he's, he's full on academia now, like, in research. Like, and he's an awesome, he just got a huge R01. Like, he's very successful. Um, fellow of the AHA, awesome guy. Um, awesome researcher. But um, while he was doing his PhD at the Medical College of Wisconsin, he, he, he practiced while he was in, like, in the throes of, of his of his program, um, he, he finished his PhD in Marquette and you know, kind of you know was practicing and doing his PhD. Um, one of my um, you know, fellow students here, a guy named Ahmad Sabahi, like he's working as a home health PT. Um, a lot, so a lot of people still do practice here and there, uh, maybe not full time in the clinic um, because of the demands of being a PhD student, um, but a lot of people still do practice, and uh, we're actually developing. A clinical service here on um, the UIC with what I do, you know, and I'll be getting more into practice than, than I am currently. So, um, long story short, yeah, a lot of PTs and PhD, um, you know, it's a lot of PhD, a lot of D, a lot of PTs who pursue or pursuing PhDs still do practice, and if they don't, it's not like they forgot about practice. They were once clinicians, and yeah. usually pretty good ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for kind of clearing that up because that is definitely something that I think is a, a misconception a lot of times with people thinking, well, if I go to get my PhD, well, I don't want to stop practicing. And, yeah. and that's not necessarily the, the way it needs to be depending yeah. on the demands of your program. Yeah. Um, okay. So tons and tons of questions from so many people about, this is from Kyle Coffey, Miranda Hendry, Michael Service. Uh, uh, who else? Uh, David Levine. So many people asking, are there any part-time PhD programs? I think David Levine has a PhD, actually. Yeah. Oh, so, oh yeah. Sorry, sorry. He does yeah. since 1994. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. you know, the, the question is, it came up again and again, is are there any part-time PhD programs because I have children or... I have loans to pay off. I still need to work and make money to pay off the loans. So, yeah, what um, say you? So again, that'll vary between the programs. Um, you know, it'll vary between what your what your mentor kind of wants you to do and how driven, like how mentor driven your program is. So there are on online programs. I think like Nova Southeastern has a part time program. Um, I think Texas Tech does. There's PsyD program, which is a little different, a little different degree than a PhD, um, especially in our field. Um, 
but again, you know, like I said, like the PhD is really, it's, it's, um, the commitment of a mentor to a student and the student to the mentor of like, all right, we're going to set this plan for you to become, you know, this academic and we have to have amount, you know, you have to accomplish this in a set amount of time. Now, um, usually, like I said, you know, you, you're on a grant that your, your PI has and that pays for your time there. Um, Mine, for example, is paid because I'm a paid researcher here and my tuition's waived um, for being an employee here. Um, but, uh, like, so, I mean, I, I'm not as confined. We're on a grant, so, like, I do have some, we have to get some stuff done in a certain amount of time. Um, so, I mean, what I'm trying to say is it'll, it'll vary how long it takes to get what you need done, the, how much you have to pay will vary between the structure of your program. And that's, these are conversations you should absolutely have with the, with the person you're looking to do your PhD under, your mentor. Um, because sometimes, like, you know, you, know, you can get the tuition is completely covered by the grant. Sometimes you're going to have to work as a TA to cover some of that, um, that cost. Um, so it, it will definitely vary. But there, there are part-time options. There are hybrid options. Um, you know, and that will vary depending on what we do. I'm, I'm full-time here, um, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm here pretty much every day, all day, even when I'm at home, I'm doing stuff, which is like, I kind of like, um, but, uh, you know, and, but if that, I I don't have kids, I don't have, you know, a spouse, I don't have a pet even, so I can kind of commit, you know, to being full-time doing stuff. So, um, you know, some programs do offer part time, or they'll let you kind of extend it a little, a little bit longer than usual. So, yeah. So it sounds like there are some options out there uh, for everyone. Yeah. You just have to know. Again, it goes back to what we said in the beginning: is know your why, yeah. know what you want to accomplish during your PhD. Find that mentor, which is all sounds to me like that's the sort of top of the food chain, the most yes. important part of the PhD. It's the and, most important part, yeah, absolutely. And make sure that that mentor knows where you're coming from because maybe this is someone you really want to work with, but guess what? Maybe the timeline doesn't work. Maybe you can't go part-time with this mentor. Yeah. So you may have to move on to someone else. Yeah, So absolutely. it all comes down to really having open communication with that mentor as to what your needs really are at the current time and then taking it, that into consideration when you're deciding on if you want to do your PhD at a certain program, because yeah, there are I, a lot of options out there. Yeah, and um, and that, that kind of goes back to like that's why you know like I, I recommend you you know reaching out to them and emailing them, and why you're not going to get like a negative response or something cold emailing someone because these are just things you have to get figured out before you apply. Like, and and they know that, and they know that. Yeah, yeah. No, that, okay, so it really comes down to that all-important mentor. So for everyone out there, if this is something you're thinking about, really hone your interests. Yeah. You know, don't go in with such broad interests of, I want a PhD in PT. I think you have to be a little bit more specific. And, and, and I would also think from the PhD student perspective, don't you want to do something you're really interested in? Yeah. Like, is, doesn't that only make sense? Well, and um, you probably will do some stuff like that you're not too interested in that like may not be towards your dissertation specifically. Um, you know, 
Um, but it's, it's part of the lab. So the way I look at it is like you come in. So there's you know, your, your, your mentor, your prof- the professor you're working on, your PI has an established lab. They produce good work, um, published research, published data. And they have you know, other students there, lab coordinators, research coordinators. Um, and students come in to contribute to the lab. They take learnings from that, from the mentor, from the other lab staff, from the other students, the postdocs. Um, they contribute something new, um, you know, and they and they um, you know, and they kind of once they finish, they go you know go about their own business. But they've contributed something to the lab um, with their own dissertation and the work that they do. So you're you're plugging into a system. Um, you're helping improve that system. Um, you're taking a piece of that system with you wherever you go. But you're also leaving something behind with some of your work and some of the stuff that you you contributed to while you're there. So it's a very kind of like I don't know I don't know the, the word for it, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a relationship there. Yeah, well, I think there's a bit of like a symbiotic relationship between yeah. different between everyone in the lab, regardless yeah. of whether they're working on exactly what you're working on. But it all contributes into the yeah. pot. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So. We covered this a little bit, but one of the main reasons people cite for not going forward with a PhD is the cost, the cost, the cost, the cost. PT students, uh, new graduates, many, I'm not going to say all, but many are graduating with six figures worth of debt. Myself included. And (laughs) and, and, And so the thought of going in for a PhD program, which may cost even more money, Added yeah. to the amount of the mountain of debt that they already have. So you spoke a little bit about uh, kind of your situation where your tuition is waived as you're being part, uh, you're being paid as a researcher. Um, there's TA opportunities now. If you're a teacher's assistant, does that mean that you're? And I'm sure this varies from program to program. Uh, but if you are again considered an employee of the university, uh, is that is that waived or or uh, if you work for let's say a large like if you work for NYU and you want to get your PhD at NYU because you work there, I know it's much 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 less, if not close to free. So yeah. is that an option when you're thinking yeah. about PhD programs? Yeah. So that that's a great thing to look into because. Um, in the state system of Illinois, anyone who works, um, I, I think it's at least part-time, any class you take is waived, um, like for any, anything. Like I could technically go take, um, I mean, I wouldn't because it wouldn't, I'm like the department wouldn't probably approve the waiver, but, um, you know, say if I worked with a janitor, you know, I wanted to take like a, a course in English literature from like Shakespearean times, but that would be waived technically. Um, so state systems usually have that benefit. And then, yeah, most institutions, even, even private institutions, have something, some kind of clause where there's a reduction. So um, I did want to clarify something. So irrespective, usually, of where you go, whether you have, like, this, you know, you, you work and you get a, a waiver or, you know, there's a grant funding that just pays it out outright or you teach or TA, um, you know, and this is this is re- this is reiterated from our our program here. You know, my interactions with Iowa, my interactions with UAB, where I where I considered applying to as well, um, and other places. You don't pay tuition. You really shouldn't be paying tuition to do your PhD. Um, 
usually it's that's waived and you usually get paid on top of it. You get a stipend usually. Um, so there are some situations where you're paying. Usually that might be more of those part-time programs where you're not there and you're not in the lab doing stuff with them. Um, that you're just kind of like taking courses and doing research and being mentored. Not the same thing. Um, so um, I don't receive extra costs from the PhD. I certainly don't make as much money as I would, you know, as, as a practicing PT, as a specialist PT, which I am. Um, but those are things I had, you know, I had to consider, you know, am I going to, um, you know, pass on making some of this money to like really kind of get to where I need to. And I, and I, and I, I felt that doing the PhD was the right thing for me to get to where I wanted to be professionally as an academic. So right. um, you're really going to have to make that decision yourself. Um, yeah. But I will say this though, you won't incur um, any more debts, you know, cause your, your tuition waived usually. Okay. Um, well that's good. Show. And that's something Jason Falvey brought up was uh, he said, you know, have Rich talk about the pay cut yeah, that you, you, yeah, you're, you get, you're most like most likely going to take from being a working clinician to being uh, a PhD student. And that and that's why I said too, a lot of um I find a lot of PhD students who are PTs still work. Like I said, my 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 good colleague and friend here, Ahmed, um, you know, he, he has a, he's a he's a wife and kids. Like he's gotta make up some money to like cover those costs. Um, you know, and, uh, fortunately for us too, um, you know, we, uh, my mentor Shane is a very, um, it's a very good entrepreneurial sense, good, like, like, you know, and, and developing things. So, um, I've, you know, I've been the opportunity to teach at other programs, um, you know, stop college. I help, I help teach there. Um, they're awesome working with those guys, Mike Walker, John Childs, Mike Jones, like Tim Flynn, those guys, um, you know, and, so that helps offset some stuff. So you you know it's basically you know it's like you know you're you you find other projects that interest you that you want it that you want to do. Um, like teaching is usually a big one, or developing a product, um, or searching for your own grants um, to pay for things while you're there. I mean, I mean so you know the traditional model was you know your mentor happened, you know gets a grant, pays for you, pays your stipend, and that's just what you live off of. But as a P, as a PT going into a PhD, you have other options. You can still work um, as a PT, make a decent amount of money doing that, probably part time, um, or you can teach Con Ed, which is something I do, um, or teach in another program, or teach at your program. That usually pays you a little bit extra too, um, and it's good experience. You get teaching experience. You can work with students, which is awesome. I love working with students. Um, or you develop a product, which we have some stuff we're working on here as well. So you got to be creative. You got to have, you know, the, the, the way the landscape of academia is definitely changing as far as, you know, salaries and how PhDs are um, marketing and valuing themselves um, outside of the classroom, outside of the lab. You really right. have to. Right. So it sounds like there are, you're not like eating ramen noodles every night and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, no. you know, to save money. So as a PT going in, you do have that really marketable skill set of being a physical therapist to enhance what you're, to enhance yeah. your income. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like you just have to be creative uh, and, and almost entrepreneurial. Yeah. In, yeah. In, while you're getting your PhD, I've heard some people say you're only an entrepreneur if you can scale things and that's what makes you an entrepreneur. 
I disagree. I think it's more of a mindset. And if you have that entrepreneurial mindset, meaning you're a self-starter, you're a go-getter, you're willing to put yourself out there for other opportunities. Yeah. And you're making a difference. Obviously, if you're teaching, you can do online educational things. I mean, there's a ton of different things that you can go into or creating a product of sorts. Yeah. Which So there's there's lots of different ways to go. I think you just have to... And, Put yourself and, out there and and work hard. Yeah, and universities now are realizing this too because grant fund, even for like their tenure track researchers, um, grant fund. So I mean, we talk about we could we could spend probably hours talking about this. Um, you know how you know com compared to other countries, we do spend the most. I think total sum of money on research and development, um, but comparatively. To our percentage of GDP to other nations, but we don't spend, we spend, I think, like 3.1% or maybe less than that. Um, and uh, like other nations spend way much more than we do. And that's R&D for like everything. And you can look at like spending for like biomedical, you know, the chunk of that. And um, yeah, and then you can look at like the healthcare costs that we, we, we incur as 17% of our GDP. We don't spend nearly as much money as we should on research. So long story short, like grant funding is a very finite resource and um, to pay for the salaries of, you know, like, like, so professors need to get, you know, obtain grant funding to pay their own salaries or they have to teach a lot. And when you teach a lot, it, 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 it gets harder and harder to produce good research. So because of that, a lot of, um, you know, universities are encouraging their professors to start like patenting products. That they can sell um, and you know and make you know money that way, sure. and a lot of universities ha now have like technology like centers for academics to use to develop a product. So basically, you have an idea, you have a scalable plan, and then they'll help you develop it. They'll keep part of the percentage and you know, they'll keep the patent, but like you'll get something developed. So yeah. if you know if you I mean academia is changing. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a, a researcher, I think he's out of Harvard, Jeff Karp, K-A-R-P. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Look him up. He's pretty amazing. But he uh, creates, I don't want to say, they're not medical devices, cause it, but um, he sort of takes inspiration from nature and then creates these medical things that help. So, for instance... He created some like little patch that can cover a hole in a heart that's semi-permeable in one direction oh. and not in another. Um, but he has come up with like a line of like skincare products for people with psoriasis. Wow. And things. So that's that's a great example of a researcher who is really yeah. kind of going in that direction, like you said, yeah. of, of patenting different things and and using uh, his research to not only help millions of other people but to also sort of probably make a little extra money yeah and it's i don't know so, i don't know when but yeah. it seems so, yeah like i mean academia is kind of like you know private you got to kind of kill what was it you eat what you kill mm -hmm. so like you gotta like you gotta find ways to find revenue and <laughs> historically in many places like this patents weren't something that contributed to the rank and tenure which is probably the most important thing for an academic uh, and now they start, are starting to like count. So like academia is going to be a lot. Social media is going to be a um, bigger thing now. Like I think the Mayo Clinic 
has added that, like your social media presence to the rank in tenure. So like that may change. So yeah, I mean, academia is starting to wise up, uh, right. which I think is good. Which I think yeah. is good. Yeah, I think that's very good. Okay, so uh, talk talking a lot about uh, applying for your PhD. You're in the midst of your PhD, um, and this is with David Levine said, uh, he said, I'll throw, throw out a thought as someone who's had their PhD since 1994. If you really want to be successful in research, research and academia, a postdoc is as important as getting the PhD. So what are your thoughts on that? So, so that's, let me, let me, so postdocs are like, like a post, like two year, usually like an externship after you finish your terminal degree. Um, in traditional academia, that is one of the more like important things because um, you you learn a way of thinking and how to you know, solve certain questions in your lab. And as a postdoc, you take those skills, you take it to another lab that usually maybe does something um, very similar to what you do. Usually, it's recommended to go somewhere that does something a little bit different than what you do, where your skills will be um, novel but will also help them solve a problem. Um, and it's good because you use that time to kind of get prepared for applying for a tenured position and stuff like that. In PT, um, since there aren't as there aren't very many PTs with PhDs at the moment, it's probably not as necessary. Um, it's I still think it's probably the most important thing you should do if you really want to be a big time researcher. Like you want to bring in, um, you know. Um, NIH grants or AHA grants, like big self-sustaining grants. But if you don't really want to be a big-time researcher, maybe not as necessary. And even some people, even some of my colleagues who've done PhDs and, and all they do is research, um, even they haven't because they're competitive too. Like, you know, postdocs are pretty competitive. Good good postdoc positions are competitive. So, um, yeah, so if you really want to be a researcher, do one, try to find one. If you can't find one, um, maybe not the end of the world. Um, and if you don't really want to be a, like a huge, huge researcher, um, you know, it's probably not, it's probably not that important to you. Okay. All right. Very good. Now, um, a, a couple of other questions that came up, uh, one from Emil Berengu. I'm so sorry if I totally butchered his name. Sorry. I'm very sorry, Emil. Um, but, one of the questions that he, he had a couple of questions and we actually covered all of them already. Um, but uh, what is the academic job landscape? So um, that's going to vary between um, like different fields. Like, um, you know, if you're in chemistry or in English, like, I mean, that's an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly competitive market. Um, but in PT, you know, it'll, it'll vary too. Um, based on your area of research. So, was it 70% of PTs are in orthopedic practice or something like that? Something like ridiculously high like that. So, um, therefore, the pool of finding someone to fill an academic role, um, teach orthopedics or manual therapy, you know, there's, there's a huge pot to pick from. Um, you know, neuro is fairly competitive as well. Cardiopalm, um, there aren't many of them. And there's 200 and odd programs. So finding someone to teach that, like usually if you have a CCS, you have a pretty good standing that you'll find a physician to teach to teach that, and then maybe you'll have some space to do research. 
um, you know, if you have a PhD, a clinical specialization, you know, that puts you a little higher up. So, and I wanted to clarify something too, because people ask me this a lot. Um, so CAPI requires um, a certain percentage, I think it might be 50% of their staff to have terminal degrees. Now that can be a doctor of education, that can be a PhD, that can also be the DSI or PsyD and PT. Um, so, you know, they have to have half of those, but the remaining can also count or can be count for core faculty um, if they have a DPT and a clinical specialization. So you can go into academia um, and you're probably going to be more a clinical faculty um, in teaching with a deep, you know, with a DPT and a clinical specialization. It'll be a lot harder um, unless you're like, you know, some super duper, you know, clinician who's got a huge following and stuff like that to get those positions, especially in orthopedics, for example. Um, but for, for me, for, for my background, I don't have a PhD, but I've been approached for positions since I, you know, even while I was in residency for faculty positions, because they need to find someone to teach that course. I want to do more than just teach. I want to do research. That's why I'm doing this PhD. But, you know, I, I, you know, I've turned down positions in some places. So, um, so yeah, the, the landscape, it'll vary between what you want to do. Um, you know, and if you really want to do research though, your PhD is going to be huge. Cause like I said, the DPT does not prepare you to be a researcher, but being a researcher and an academic are not the same exact thing. Got so, it. And Got I think it. people, people miss, have missed it over. Yeah. I, yeah. And that was actually one of the questions. So we can check that off the list. Um, another question, you kind of mentioned it in, uh, that answer there was, the the DSC the EDD the PhD yeah what what are the pros and cons I know you're getting a PhD I I don't know that you can specifically speak on the DSC and EDD but if if you have some basic pros and cons of each in term of in terms of academics so um, like I said for Kathy you need to have um, they need to have at least fifty percent. Um, and usually most, like our, our program here at UIC, and even when I was in Miami, most of our faculty, I think you're over 80% um, both, have PhDs. Um, just because it's, you know, they want to produce research and it just, it kind of locks you in. If you have a PhD, you know, you have a DPT, you have a specialization, like, you, you know, it's one of those, like, all rectangles, uh, or so all, all squares are rectangles, but all rectangles are squares, like, They'll count, but it'd be better if you had the PhD because, you know, they would fulfill that happier part. And it would look better for the ranking. But anyway. Got it. Um, so the doctor of science, um, in, will, like the, compared to the PhD, will vary between different disciplines. So in engineering and in chemistry, they're pretty much the same thing. Now in rehabilitation, like our, our field, a little bit different. Um, and there's only a handful of programs. The Doctor of Science, incredibly well-respected degree. It's a terminal degree. It counts the same for CAFI requirements. It's a terminal degree. But usually most programs, it's more clinically oriented. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's more for clinical reasoning. It's some skills and stuff. There's maybe a research requirement. There's, there's definitely a dissertation but it's not the same thing as a PhD. Um, it's, it's a little bit different. The expectations of the student are different. The expectation of someone holding that degree in the rehab sciences is different than someone holding a PhD. Um, 
but then again, there are, there are some really good people with these eyes that do really good research. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those N equals one kind of situations. Like, you know, it's not always dependent on the degrees who, who holds in what they've done. But if you're not, if you don't really want to go and be a big time self-sustaining researcher, um, you know, and maybe you want to be more clinical faculty and, 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 and that, with that kind of slant, the D side might be your better option than doing a PhD. Then again, in our field, we also have PhDs in manual therapy. So, I mean, I think we probably need to do better at standardizing things. Um, this is to show you as an example. I think Texas Tech has a DSI in health sciences or, a, or rehab sciences, and they also have a PhD in health sciences, the same program. Just to show you, there is, there is, there are similar, but they're different. They're both incredibly well-respected degrees. They're just a little bit different. So it sounds to me like it again, comes down to what do you want to do? Yeah. You know, if you want to be really heavy into research, then maybe a PhD is the way to go. If you yeah. want to do research, but maybe not make it the main focus of the rest of your career, then maybe the, the DSC might be a better option for yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. And if you and you can do a PhD sometimes in, like, I think um, we have a faculty member here who's going to do your PhD, I think, in, like, educational psychology. So it's not, it's going to be like the, you know, and that's kind of where her research is in, more, you know, kind of qualitative stuff. And so like, um, and, and the, the foundations of, re, of teaching. And then there's also the doctor of education, which kind of prepares you to be um, a little bit better of a teacher in some respects, but more like an administrator for teaching too. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think that's a pretty good overview of some pros and cons for people. And, and, you know, again, you have to know what, what you want, and when you contact that mentor, talk about it. Yeah. That's, that's the, the, the way it's going to happen. Um, this was a question from the student group, Christian Garcia, which I think we talked about it a little bit, but I just want to make sure that we have covered this. Um, what are some good ways to learn about and connect with researchers, which I think we talked about, but let's just talk about that again. And what information about yourself or your research interests is important to convey upon an introduction? So we've already talked about a great way to uh, connect with these researchers through email. And, and you can get a, a researcher's email very easily. Yeah. It's, it's you go to whatever university they're at and their email is right there. So very, yep. very easy to do. So let's say I want to email you. You are now, let's say, we're five years in the future. You'll have your PhD by then, right? Hopefully, yeah. Okay. Hope, hopefully, so, hopefully sooner, yeah. <laughs> so let's say yeah. we're going five years into the future here. Maybe we'll say 10 just to be on the safe side. But And I'm a, a student or I'm a, let's say I'm not even a student. I'm a PT and I'm interested in research, specifically cardiovascular research, your area of study. So I'm going to send you an email. What should be included in that email? Can you kind of break that down, almost giving a bit of a template for people to follow? So um, so within the email, you should give yourself an introduction, like who you are. Um, you know, if you're a practicing PC, you know, maybe mentioning where you practice in and stuff like that. Um, it's always good in some respects to mention to the researcher, like if the, you've read some of their papers or follow some of their work. Um, okay, like, you know, I assume you've published some of this stuff. I'm interested in this be because of why. This is why I'm interested in this. Um, you know, those should be the general kind of, the, like, who you are, 
what you've done and like why you're interested in their what they're doing and how um, you know why you would want to pursue you know their mentorship as a PhD student. Um, but as far as connecting with other researchers um, within our field, we have our own little social networks. Uh, ResearchGate is um, what we use. It's a um, it's a social media site where researchers post um, their their research. Um, where they follow other researchers to see, you know, when they're posting new things. Um, it's also a way for you to, to display your CV, so like what you've done, who you've done it with. Like I said, like that's that's. I mean, your published works, as like one of my one of my professors here told me, your published manuscripts and like textbooks are basically the coin of the realm. Like it's what, um, like what counts. That's changing in some regards in academia, as you know, like I mentioned uh, previously, but. Who you, who, what you've done and who you've done it with matters a lot. Um, so getting that out there is huge, and that research gate is great for that. Okay. Um, and it also gives you like an objective measures too, which I think is kind of cool. Who's reading your paper? Um, you, never, you, know, you don't necessarily know that, and they're tracking that now. More journals, downloads, and clicks and views. Um, and then another great resource is Twitter. Um, we're going to talk about this. Um, I'm leading a talk with Ben Fung, Greg Todd, Brett Kastenbaum myself on social PT and I'm going to talk a bit about the academic slant and how to collaborate and interact with other people and how to just help get your papers out um, and your information out through social media. So Twitter's a huge one. Most um, most labs will have an account. Um, we have one um, at UIC IPL. Um, a lot of our you know, PhD students are all on Twitter. A number of faculty members are on Twitter and a lot of, a, a lot of faculty members are now getting on more yeah, and I think if you're looking for academics or journals who do a great job at integrating social media with disseminating their information, I think BJSM is. Oh yeah! Oh my God! Yeah, one of the best. Stuff. I mean, yeah, and they, they're and they doing a great job. And a lot of them make podcasts. BJSM does a podcast. Yep. Journal of American Cardiology. American College of Cardiology does one. I listen to that. The um, AMA on, does one. Yeah, they do yeah. great stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So those are some other. I think resources that uh, you can kind of tap into, uh, and, and when you write that letter, like you said, again, you're saying who you are, what you're doing, mention that you've read a couple of articles and why you specifically enjoyed those articles, and it should be, this should not be a two to three page email, people. No, don't this should be very, that. right? Don't do this that. This should be very yeah. short. If you want to yeah. put a link with your CV, I know what a lot of people are doing now um, in lieu of or maybe uh, before, before giving over the official CV is I, I've seen a lot of PTs do um, like websites. Yeah, I've seen that more often. I think that's great. So yeah. you could link to your website, and that has everything that you've uh, – that's your, your CV, but it's a little more dynamic, and I think it's a great way to stand out. Yeah. On, another thing I would recommend, too, um, if you decide to go into a PhD, um, is to try to get some experience in a lab before you do it. Um, I was fortunate because I, I, I come from a um, – an academic family like my grand my um aunt is a researcher at penn state my first job was working in her plant pathology lab as a work study student growing cereal doing cereal growing for plants and um simple mixtures and stuff and i um you know i taught a little bit as an undergrad but when i was in residency you know i worked with barbara morgan 
um, you know, who is a big time researcher and PT. She's more in the Americas data status now, kind of moving into the into retirement. But I got to work on a sleep apnea study with her, pretty, pretty nice clinical trial. Um, and then while I was in residency at UIC, you know, I was a PI for my own study. So get a, get a little bit of a taste of what it, what it means to work in a lab um, before you commit yourself to three to five years of it. And yeah. usually, the, and that will look good on your application because they're, they're, because I said, there's like usually one or two spots in most places, um, you know, and, and if it's a, if it's a, if it's a good lab of good researchers, those are going to be very competitive, competitive spots. Um, and, and sometimes even if it's a, a smaller lab, you know, fund, funding may not always, funding is a scarce resource. So, um, you know, it gives you a bit of a taste, gives you an expectation of what you're going to be doing. And it also shows that you can do certain things because a lot of it's like, what can you contribute to our lab? Like, you know, because, you know, getting in, going to those scarce resources, they want to bring in people who are going to contribute. Um, yeah. No, I think that's great advice for anyone that's thinking of moving on to a PhD program is to get some experience in a lab, see what it's like. I mean, yeah. before you before you um, start a PT program, you're supposed to do some volunteer experience in a clinic to see if you like it. So it only makes sense that you would want to do yeah. that. Like you yeah. said, if this is where you're going to spend the next three to five years, you kind of want to know that you're making a good uh, a good decision on that. Yeah, and usually too, um, you know the. The researchers, those are great letters of recommendation too. Oh like, yeah. Like yeah. mine from Barbara Morgan was huge um, for here, and um, Larry Cahalan, who I, I worked with a bit on um, that in Miami, that was a, that was a huge letter of recommendation. And like, and then they can help connect you. You can ask them about your, about the mentors you're applying to. Like Barbara Morgan, um, who I worked with at Wisconsin, was like, yeah, Shane Phillips is an awesome mentor. Like all the students love him. And like I can now now being under them as a student, I see why I'm an awesome mentor. Um, so you you get some in, inside information from people. So like and which is which is useful because again like you're gonna be committing yourself to some time to this lab, and you really want to you know make sure you, it's a good fit for everybody. Yeah. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's say you've graduated, you have your PhD. Now what? So there's a lot of Different Take over ways. the world. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a lot yeah. of different ways that your career can go. So there's some different career options. So you could have research, teaching, consulting, uh, like you had said before, uh, creating um, uh, patents, things like that yeah. for, for different things. So can you explain a little bit um, about that path and and how how will you decide what you want to do? Because I it's obviously we can't generalize that to full population, but we could talk about you. Yeah. So um, so one thing too, if, if you pursue a PhD, you really should be of the mindset that I'm going to be a researcher. And that, so people ask me, well, I want to teach. You know, should I do my do I should I do my PhD? And like we mentioned, like you don't necessarily need to do that, and like that may not be the best idea because like you know it's not there to prepare you to be a teacher, um, but. For what I want to do, I mean, I, I hopefully, um, you know, we'll be looking for positions at a, at a larger tier one university um, where I can do a good bit of research and teach, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, we have some stuff we're working on here as far as uh, certificate courses to kind of prepare clinicians to um, be better researchers who may, you know, may not have the whole time or the, or the time cost or the, um, the you know, or, or can't occur, incur the time cost. Or uh, you know, the 
the financial cost potentially of pursuing a PhD. We're offering these certificates, but um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's something where I want to be somewhere that you know, um, you know, like so. A lot of departments will have positions, you know, it's just like they have the cardiopulmonary position, the orthopedic position, you know, the neuro position that teaches courses and they do this little bit of research. Um, and most PT programs don't produce a lot of research. Um, you know, there's probably, I mean, there's, there's a good number of them, like Pittsburgh does it, Miami does it, we absolutely do at UIC, we pump out a ton of papers. Um, you know, even some of our clinical faculty who don't have a high scholar demand produce a lot of good manuscripts. Um, USC is another one, Florida is another one, Duke, you know, the, you know, those are, those are huge big time research programs. Um, and a lot of times at those programs, the positions are a little different. It's not like you're just brought on to be the cardiopulmonary guy. You're brought on to do research and maybe you teach a class here and there, but you're not like that guy, you know, and, and that's, and that's where, uh, that's where our department head comes in. Who's kind of a bit of a visionary with that kind of stuff, but he's, um, you are the dynamics of, of our faculty a little bit more fluid, um, which allows us to do some pretty cool stuff. Um, you know, so hopefully, I, you know, I'd find a program like that where you can, you know, you're not just, you're not confined to just doing one thing. Um, you know, there's, there's a bit more leeway in some of the cool stuff you can do. And, you know, because um, I think, I think a, a common character of academics, they're, they're generally pretty intelligent people. Um, those are very creative people and, and like, being able to do different things, so. Yeah, and and you had, you had mentioned uh, a certificate program yeah. uh, that you're developing. What does that mean? And yeah. what if someone is interested in that? What is the certificate program for? Yeah, so this is a, the brainchild of uh, my mentor here, Shane Phillips, um, and, and Ross Arena, our department head. So, um, which I, they were told me about this, and you know, I'm gonna be helping them with that. Uh, I think it's a great idea. So what we're trying to do um, is, so you know, part of Vision 2020 was to get like more outcomes research to help you know prove what we do is effective, which is going to help you know for reimbursement and all that and direct access and all the things we had planned on achieving. And we've made some huge strides. Um, but I think um, there's definitely a need for people who want to get more involved in research, but don't um, have the resources. So we're developing a certificate program to train people to conduct outcomes research. So it's not like what I do or what a PhD student does, but stuff they can take to their clinic, um, you know, and like, and contribute and contribute data that we can use to, you know, prove efficacy of stuff. A lot of where research is going is what we call translational medicine, where we take things out of the vacuum of an RCT which have to be in a vacuum because that's, that's the, the point of an RCT is to remove the degrees of freedom so we can determine cause and effect, causation, causality. Um, but, you know, when you get into practice, things are a little bit different. Um, there's a lot more things going on in, in the environment. So we have these translational studies and now to apply, you know, after we've done multiple RCTs and systematic reviews, you know, the proof efficacy. You know, did this make it, you know, an effect in the clinic? So, and I think this is moving towards that direction. We're getting um, people trained so they can start doing some of this translational research, which is going to help everybody. And the benefit of that is you want you want PhD researchers doing, you know, RCTs. You want them doing the big big time studies. Um, you know, 
it may be more effective and more efficient to have clinicians, you know, let's say lead, but um, contribute more to these you know, translational studies with maybe a PhD overseeing it. And that's kind of where I see this helping. Um, and then maybe if someone does a certificate and they really get kind of that, 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 that itch, that, you know, that research bug, and then maybe they go do a PhD. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it'll be a little bit short of a duration. Um, so it's not, you know, they're not, they're not locked in for five years as a PhD student where your, your demands for doing things are a lot higher. Um, so that's what we're, we're, we're working on. It, it's based in Chicago now only. Um, but we're going to try to have some some different offerings in the future and expand it out because I think it's going to be it, I think it's going to be pretty pretty successful because um, people ask me all the time like I want to do research but I don't want I can't do a PhD right now but I, I want to get better at it and you know as a PT student like you're not you know and I did I did a lot of you know I, I did a good bit of research as a student um, and presented at CSM but um, you know and as a resident but I didn't really get research training like hardcore training until I was a, a PhD student, because it, it's a skill just like mobilizing a spine. Like you've got to have dedicated mentorship and, and practice to it. And that's not what the DPT is there to prepare you for. Um, right. That's what the PhD is for. Right. And, and it's hard work. Yeah, it's, a, it's hard work. Yeah, It's hard work, you know, so you have to, I think you have to be prepared for that hard work as well. Um, but I think that certificate program is what a great way to kind of blend the academia or the the PhD studies with clinic with people actually in the clinic because you know you hear all the time at least I see it on social media all the time how RCTs don't matter all that matters is what you see in the clinic that's evidence-based practice that you know the old three-legged yeah, stool three, three or, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but people don't understand like you said there are reasons for RCTs yeah you know, they need to be there and they're in a vacuum for a reason. Yeah. Um, and and you're, well, this is what I'm seeing, cannot replace that. Yeah. You know, so I think that that program, that certificate program might be an interesting way to get people in the clinic to to get a little taste of of why it's important to do this, to do research. Yeah. And how it does in fact and should direct your care with patients. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think it, it, it helps connect everyone. So like what we find um, difficulty with, you know, and, 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 and this, is, this is not necessarily my area of research, but um, just talking to people who, who do out, like, like the, I think it was the PCORI study that was this huge like $64 million grant out of the University of Florida. We can, we are, we're a site for it uh, here at UIC, big study. Um, but trying to find out what, what the hell is going on, sorry for, for, uh, for vanity, no, but no. Um, what is going on in, in, in practice? Like, you know, is, you know, are some of these guidelines, are some of these recommended, are they making an impact? What is actually going on here? So, I mean, I remember, you know, this kind of came to my fault when, when, I, was, when I was a student or a resident in, in Madison. Um, we presented this case study at, CS, at CSM on this high intensity training that we did with, uh, um, guy of hypersensitive pneumonitis, incredibly aggressive disease. Usually people die from it pretty soon. Um, can only be transplanted to cure it um, when, when it hits chronic stages. So um, my mentor had been using, utilizing this protocol for probably a decade. 
and um, and has had some good efficacy, but there's no published data on it, no retrospective analyses on it. So it makes, there's so much out there, so much data, that if we could find a way to like harvest that data, process it, you know, that's going to be huge for us. We're talking about like prove our work. If we can, I mean, imagine if we could get all the outcomes from all the PTs and find out what's going on here, we could really have, you know, some strong numbers that combat, you know, different organizations or insurance companies to try to take away our reimbursements. Like, hey, like we make an impact here. Here's our data. But right now it's just a, it's a big pool of data that's not connected to the, the system of academia, of research. And I think this, this will be a part of that. This will definitely help contribute to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it may, we also be looking at financial burdens of these outcomes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, Adrian Lowe uh, did a study um, on, I think it was a, a pain neuroscience education pre-surgery. And they came out with not only the results of pain and, and efficacy of, of what the patients thought about the surgery, but also uh, numbers, financial numbers. Yeah which actually showed uh, a significant decrease in medical utilization over yeah. a year and three years. So it is, is this something that is being thought of during some of this research, especially talking with outcome studies? I don't know, you, I don't know if you know the answer to that question, but... No, no uh, not particularly, but I, I do know that it's probably, as far as like implementing the studies, it's probably, you know, like the, the issue is, too, when we have a PhD researcher going into the clinic um, into a, a separate clinic, maybe you know, maybe not affiliated with the university. Um, they may not know that I. It's always harder to have someone from the outside come into a clinic, even if someone was just a clinician. It's always harder outside in. Why not train the people there to do the research, help them out as an advisor, let them like you know, like give them the tools necessary to conduct research. And, um, and then, like, you know, it'll be much more easier, I think, and much more effective. Yeah, so, no, it yeah. makes perfect sense. So when is that program expected to roll out? I, I think we're starting that. I hope it starts this this fall um, for the first cohort. Uh, we have If people do have questions, they can um, contact me um, or my mentor. Um, I guess in the write-up, I can... I yeah, can this, this, uh, this will uh, all be in the in the show notes. We'll put it all in the show notes for yeah. people. So they could go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and get all the info. Yeah, or just or if you find me on Twitter, PT Reviewer, you can always reach out to me. I'm always accessible. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, any, any sort of final thoughts on, on a PhD... And, yeah. and any final thoughts for the listeners? So some final final thoughts um, I have, and something I, I, I also, you know, a lot of people have this, um, say, misnomer about academia, the, a bunch of people and sheltered lads that are like, um, you know, just focus only on what they do and that's all they do. And like, I, I mean, the demands of research are incredibly high. Like you're, you're going to be meeting some hours. But we're people too. Like we just kind of, I mean, we're just like everyone else, you know. Um, you know, we socialize, we do events and stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. Like you know, and it will vary between labs. Um, but our environment here at UIC, it's great. You know, we got a great setup here, and um, you know, it's 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 just like any working environment. You're gonna have people that are um, a little different. And the great thing about academia, though, is you usually get a lot of 
people from different cultures and different parts of the world sometimes. We have people in our lab in Korea, um, we have people from the Netherlands, people from Thailand, people from Greece, um, you know, Egypt, Saudi, India. Um, it's that's awesome, you know, for me, you know, like I love different cultures and different people. And I don't think you get that anywhere else really in academia. You really learn to work with different people and different cultures. So, um, and it's not all men. It's not all men. That's the thing people, I think, kind of, I mean, it, it's changed. I mean, you, you're definitely where, um, you know, historically it's an all, you know, you know, white male kind of dominated thing, but it's changing. You know, we have a, a lot of our, our faculty members are, are women. Um, a lot of the PhD students, probably about half in our lab are women. So, um, you know, and I, I encourage to more and more women, um, more and more minorities and stuff like that to, to, you know, to go into academia. It's only, it's only going to contribute different perspectives to our research and it's going to be better for everybody. So um, a lot of what I've been trying to do as a student, um, long, what kind of long-term goals is to open access to data so people can make informed decisions, but also open like the, the, the traditionally veiled nature of academia and show like, you know, just people like everyone else. They just like to investigate um, and answer questions. Um, you know that that's. Now I'll leave you with that. You know, ac- you know, clinical practice is solving problems. Academia and research um, is answering questions, solving or answering questions. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, the the hope is that you're kind of opening the doors to the ivory tower, kind of what yeah. we had talked about before. Yeah. That it's not this inaccessible place for only the few elite people who can get in. Yeah. And those, and though, and there are people that um, view it that way, you know, from from the outside, and those who are within the outer tower who view it that way, um, and you know, they they're, they'll soon be kind of be um, extinct. And I, I think the world of academia is changing. It, it's and it's exciting. Great. Well, I know you just said it before, but where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at my account um, at PT Reviewer. That's the same for the Facebook page, Facebook's you know, .com slash PT Reviewer, or the website ptreviewer.com. Um, and also look for, um, we should probably have the first one, maybe by the end of August, we've been working all summer on developing this project uh, called the Rehab Review, um, where we are taking, um, you know, questions um, in rehab and then doing literature searches, extensive ones, which will be reviewed by two people of our team, um, so like one person does a search, you know, develops an outline, it's reviewed by two people, um, critiqued, and then we record the findings in a consumable five to six minute video posted on YouTube for free forever, and then we post the outline for people to um, go through as well. So again, open data, open access, trying to provide the information that people can um, you know, or the private information is available so people can make their own decisions or evidence-informed decisions. Because I think that's really where the, the role of the academic needs to go to. Like, yeah. let's let's get like let's start getting that information out to people. Let's make it more open. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we thank you a lot for that, and look forward to that coming hopefully within the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, look for Rich all over social media. He'll be at CSM in San Antonio with a couple of talks. Correct. Uh, well, one for certain, maybe a poster. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. So, uh, everybody, thanks for listening. All of the resources that we mentioned today, you can find at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. It'll all be in the show notes with links. And again, you can find me on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC 
and on Facebook, facebook.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart. All right. So big thank you to Rich for uh, breaking through a lot of misconceptions. And uh, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.